real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Rome is with you. And today, we're going to be talking about policing and justice reform. And for that, we have Vernon White with us, Senior Partnerships Director with CCAP. And give you a little bit of background on Vernon. He spent a majority of his life in service to Canada. He's a graduate of RCMP Training Academy. He completed a full career with the Mounties. He worked in three provinces and across all three territories, moving from the rank of constable to assistant commissioner. Vernon worked as chief of police for both the Durham Regional Police Service and Ottawa Police Service. He's been a lecturer or professor at universities across Canada and internationally. He's also obtained his master's in conflict analysis and management from Royal Roads University, as well as his doctorate from the Australian Graduate School of Policing at Charles Sturt University in Australia. Vernon just finished up sitting as a senator in the Senate of Canada, and he now lives in Finland, which we'll get into a little bit today as well. So welcome, Vernon. Yeah, thank you very much. Good to see you. Um, you're probably the furthest guest we've spoken with. So <laughs> there you go. That could be your claim to fame for now. <laughs> First for everything. I'm 100 kilometers south of the Arctic Circle. Oh. Wow. And well, just the other day here, it was minus 37 with uh, wind chill. Uh, is it that cold in Finland? No, you know, where I'm at now, like we're about minus seven. It's uh, six o'clock at night here, minus seven. I was out running today in shorts. Yeah. Oh, wow. Jeez. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't even do that. They have this, um, they have this uh, uh, Gulf stream that tends to keep the temperature from getting, you know, you might get a couple of weeks of minus 20, a little colder, but you don't get the same cold. When I lived in Nunavut, you know, it would be minus 35 for five or six weeks. Yellowknife, same thing. Or Nuvik, you know, same thing. Mm -hmm. You don't get any of that. Uh, you don't get any of that over here. Oh, interesting. Well, um, I guess that's why you moved away from here. At least you get a bit warmer no, weather. I, yeah, right. Yeah, I think <laughs> if I was moving for the weather, it would have been Australia or somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Or New Zealand. Well, let's uh, start at the beginning because you have quite a career. You've been a lot of places and worked for a lot of uh, big organizations. But maybe if you could take us back to the beginning and tell us uh, where you come from and about you and family and how you got into sure. everything. You know, you know what? I grew up in Cape Breton. Um, my dad was a coal miner, a small town called New Waterford, coal mining community, very uh, rough uh, type of community or typical kind of mining town. Uh, never had an interest in policing, to be fair. We saw the RCMP in our community long enough to arrest <laughs> friends and neighbors, not much else. So I didn't exactly um, have a good a relationship with the police. As I, I used to jokingly say, if I saw the police, I was typically looking over my right shoulder as I'm running. <laughs> um, and then uh, when I was uh, 19 years old, I did a uh, ride-along. I had been working part-time as a bartender going to college and did a ride-along with the RCMP because RCMP member came and invited me to. And I joked that I'd had a couple of earlier ride-alongs that weren't so great. Um, in the back seat, I wasn't convinced this one would be much better, uh, but I did. I did a ride along, and we went on a domestic uh, violence, uh, domestic uh, case 
within the first hour. I couldn't believe that uh, the police were involved and engaged and trying to manage the, the difficult situation this family was going through. And, and uh, we arrested him, helped uh, put a meal on the table for the kids that had been thrown onto the floor by the father in that, that drunken kind of rage. Patched up a broken window with a piece of plywood we found under the step, and 30 minutes later left. You know, it was, uh, and I just couldn't believe that job existed out there where you could make such a difference in somebody's life so quickly. And uh, you know, it was it was a very small thing for me, but I'm I'm sure for that family, having been to a lot of those houses over a 32-year policing career, I'm sure for that family it was a, an important uh, few moments. Mm-hmm. So uh, it made me decide I wanted to be a police officer. It took me a couple of years to get in, uh, maybe because of my earlier ride-alongs, I'm not sure. Um, but I was successful at uh, getting into the RCMP. So I, and and uh, I loved every day of policing. Uh, even my very last day, I joked I was a chief in Ottawa. And my last day, I was still getting up at five in the morning so I could get in first and mm-hmm. see what was on the go, you know. So I loved every day of it. Well, without incriminating yourself, but what what type of youth were you? Because you say you got a couple ride-alongs before. Yeah, <laughs> not picked up for you know drinking and fighting at the local dance, that kind of stuff. Nothing serious, but mm. uh, but you know, look, a lot of a lot of kids I grew up with, uh, three of them died of uh, drug overdoses. Um, number of kids that I grew up with went to institutions other than the RCMP, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, look, the neighborhood I grew up, you you could easily find yourself on the wrong side of the law. And my my parents were very engaged with us as kids and, and very connected. So I didn't, and my brothers did, but easily could have. So I certainly saw that a lot, but but um, but never really thought of, even when I was offered the ride along with the RCMP, I remember at the time I was 19 or you know, going on 20. And I remember saying to the officer, look, you don't hire people from my town, my street, my family into the RCMP. So mm. why would you waste your time on me? And he laughed and said, look, you'd be surprised at how many people we hire from your type of town, your type of street, your type of family. It's we're looking for people who can connect to the community. So, so it was, uh, and it changed my perspective on that the rest of my career as well. I saw, I believe every officer, every employee of a police organization should be a recruiter. Mm-hmm. Their job should be to find good people in the community. And if they want to become police employees or officers or civilians, great. And if not, you've at least built a relationship at the same time. So I think that everybody is a recruiting model is probably the only way. And today when we're, you know, we just heard British Columbia RCMP identify that there are 20% uh, vacancies in the RCMP. They need to find a model other than what they're using, obviously, because it's not successful. Mm-hmm. Well, I think getting back to that basics might be our success story. Did you have any family in service, like whether it was military or police, or that had an impact on you deciding to go there at all? I had an older brother who was in military police in the military for 12 or 13 years, and then he went back to school, became a social worker. Mm-hmm. But no, not really. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, uh, I'm not joking when I tell you that the only time I ever remember seeing the RCMP at my school ever was to arrest somebody. Oh, wow. I never, never once saw them there for any other purpose. Mm-hmm. I never knew one RCMP officer. Uh, by name, like so, it wasn't the same growing up in in New Waterford, Cape Breton. It wasn't something you necessarily aspired to be was uh, to be a police officer. So, yeah, I, I never crossed my mind that it's something I could be. Mm-hmm. And that ride along, uh, I think I did hundreds of hours of ride alongs after that till I got in. I mean, it just I, it was like I couldn't believe that this job was out there, and everybody wasn't talking about it. It was crazy. 
Yeah. Well, it certainly can take you to places you wouldn't even know exist and uh, through some career paths that, yeah, you wouldn't find just on any job board. So uh, what year did you go through training? I went through in 81, graduated in 82. Okay. And then my first posting was the west coast of Newfoundland, a place called Stephenville, and uh, two years there. And then I went north until from 84 until 2003. Can you talk a bit about training? So what was uh, depot like yeah. back in the 80s? You know, I, I actually liked it because it was, it had, uh, it had, um, it was formal for me, you know, it was very structured. I needed that kind of, uh, I thought that structure was good for me. Um, you know, a lot of people talked about how much they hated it. Not once that I hated it there. There were, might've been things I hated about it, like swimming, you know, <laughs> swimming for me is a recreation. Swimming for them was a, a, a chore, you know? Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, no, I actually like the structure and uh, the camaraderie, 32 people in one dorm. I thought was kind of neat, not something I'd experienced. So I went through training and, and enjoyed it actually. By the end, uh, I made some very good friends, people I still, you know, talk to as recently as last week. I may not have seen them. And uh, one guy, Mike LeBlanc, I spoke to him last week by uh, email. I haven't seen him probably in 10 years. Oh, wow. Uh, so, so. So those friends for life. And that's what I liked about policing as well. And particularly, I mean, I, I work both municipal and RCMP. The bonus I saw from the RCMP was the ability to do different jobs all over the country. And in fact, in other countries, if you choose to. Um, and, and I have friends all over Canada as a result. Uh, the bonus with municipal policing is you actually have an opportunity to put down roots that I didn't have that opportunity to put down roots until I became you know, living in Ottawa from 2007 till 2022, it gave me 15 years to put down roots, both as a police chief and then afterwards as a senator, that I had not had the opportunity to do since I'd left home. So so when people talk about what's better, I typically walk through, there is no better or worse, there's different. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's municipal, provincial, or federal policing, there's differences. But I, I do think all three of them provide great opportunities to, uh, to learn, engage, and uh, make a difference in our communities. Yeah, and certainly, you know, it's, they're both policing, but uh, yeah, the biggest draw, I think, for the RCMP is the ability to move, see, you know, multiple parts of this country. Uh, When you were going through depot, uh, did they pay, pay you at that time or no? Yeah, no, they paid you. You actually became, uh, you were sworn in when you were, when you uh, first joined. Oh, okay. Back then, because now, now I think they give you a small amount of money every month or something, but. Mm-hmm. But that's an issue, you know, particularly when you have a recruiting challenge and you're, you know, you're expecting a 28 year old to leave his wife and two kids at home in Prince Albert and, and, uh, you know, go to Regina, um, and you have no money coming and it's a difficult six months for people. <clears throat> and I think that's a challenge that a lot of the municipal communities have as well, if they're not, uh, providing funding. And in case, in some cases you have to actually pay your way through training, like in Ontario. Yeah. Well, that was one of the questions I was going to get to. And uh, you see multiple kind of models where de- uh, when I went through depot, they were paying, I think it was $500 a week. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but I was one of the first classes in 2011. I think it was, we were one of the first classes to start getting paid again. Uh, but then when you come to a municipal service like Edmonton, they uh, start paying you, you know, your, your salary right off, off the bat. But then you go to the East Coast or Ontario and you got to go through a college. And then, so there's lots of different ways of doing it. Do you have kind of a, an opinion on which one you've seen works best and why? 
Well, I think you have to have one understanding who we're recruiting, right? That, you know, we're re- typically recruiting these days more mature people. We say that we want people with some life experiences. I think you need people that actually can financially uh, afford to be able to separate from their family for six, nine, in the case of uh, Holland College in, in Eastern Canada, 13 months, right? Mm-hmm. I think you have to be able to make it financially viable for them to succeed so that they can, they're not coming out of there owing $25,000 before they even start. Yeah. So I think that that model is the best. I'm, that doesn't mean you have to swear them in. Like, um, I think there is an issue with swearing in people as a, an employee of the organization. Often in the RCMP, I was sworn in as a police officer, you know, before I even went to training. I think there's a challenge with that from a, uh, um, from an understanding of what we expect of these people. I think we instead should hire them as a cadet, pay them based on, you know, that you know, they're, they're putting in 40, 60, you know, we were 60 hours a week in depot when I was there. I'm sure you were as well. Yeah. Right. I mean, 20 hours a week, just keeping your kit going. for yeah. sake. So I think you need to provide them with an amount of money. So they're not broke, particularly right now when we're trying to recruit, you know, every police organization in the country is having a problem recruiting right now. So it's not like it's going to get easier. I think we need to figure out how we make it viable for them to actually join. Well, and like you were saying, uh, and anybody else I've talked to that's gone through depot, they all actually say they liked it. I, I've yet to find a person who says, you know, I absolutely hated it for whatever reason. Obviously, there's always little things that you don't like here and there. But uh, looking back, you know, it's, it's a unique experience. And you build those friends for life. And the camaraderie is, is much, much different than you might see in a municipal service where when I got to Edmonton, you know, it's, it's eight to four and that's it. And you're free to do whatever you want after and weekends. But, um, you know, it, it's just, I, I wonder what model would suit people best, or maybe you just have that, that variety and then you can attract whoever wants that kind of uh, start. Yeah, and I believe, actually, if there's a mistake being made, and I, I said this back in 2008 or nine when I was chief in Ottawa, I think, like they do in the U.S., where um, the military arms and the, and the security agencies recruit en masse, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's what police agencies should be doing as well. And instead of trying to, you know, Ottawa trying to steal an officer that wanted to go to Edmonton or Edmonton for the RCMP, I think they should be recruiting based on, look, this is a basket of goods. We all provide law enforcement and policing in your community, but depending on which agency you go to could depend on what type of policing or opportunities you have. And if you just want to, you know, many people who apply, look, I was averaging 30, 40 RCMP RCMP applicants to the Ottawa police every summer when I was the chief because they wanted to come back home, right? They were Mm -hmm. from the Ottawa region. They wanted to live at home. They didn't want to do the types of policing most RCMP officers were doing in Ottawa at that time, which was security of Parliament Hill. So they were joining Ottawa police for a different reason. I think we need to get to that point. Look, uh, the Police Sector Council built national standards for police officers back in 2003 up until 10, I think. I think we do need to standardize police officer model. You would actually get a card stating that I've met all the requirements for policing in Canada. Most agencies would adopt that card system, and you could apply where you like. And then maybe after five or six years in, in the RCMP, I don't know where you were posted. Uh, where were you at in BC? I was in Okotoks, just south of Calgary. Okotoks. 
Yeah. So maybe after five or six years in Okotoks, you know, you know what? My, my folks are getting older in Edmonton. I'm going to go there now for the next five or six years, apply and see if I can get into the uh, Edmonton Police Service. And then, you know, after your folks are taken care of or whatever happens with family, you decide, I think that fluidity is what we're going to have to get to if we want to keep people engaged in policing. You'd be surprised at how many officers. I sent uh, our, um, Ottawa police officers, seconded them to the RCMP to work in Nunavut when I was the chief in Ottawa because I wanted them to have that experience of, you know, being everything in the community, right? Mm-hmm. Everything from uh, vaccinating dogs with uh, for, for rabies to uh, school talks every single day to I wanted them to be involved in that community in the way I felt I grew from it. Mm-hmm. And for the officers who went up there loved it. In fact, every one of them still to this day talk about uh, that and maybe an international peacekeeping opportunity, the greatest experiences they ever had. So I think we need to get to that fluid level if we want to keep people engaged beyond that. Um, it's just a job now uh, that some officers find themselves in, uh, you know, kind of offering them that those other opportunities out there. Yeah, and uh, you actually hit on a good point there that I was I brought up a few times where now it, I I think a lot of this the these policing jobs are seen as just that it's just a job just like any other thing, and I think that's kind of dangerous for police to think that way because you're out there uh, where you can literally walk out the door of the police station and somebody attacks you. It's happened. Uh, I know a few people even here in Edmonton. It's you, you put on the uniform and people don't care who's behind the uniform. Sometimes they just see that um, and they ha- have a hate for it for whatever reason. But you have to see this as more of a, I'll say a calling, but maybe there's a better term for it. But yeah, just seeing it as just a job, then it also, I think, loses some of that uh, attractiveness where people, especially you look at like young males. They want to go into the military because they want to do something. They want to go somewhere. Uh, and that's a common complaint I hear about people who leave the military. Well, we were just doing nothing. Well, if it's just another nine to five job, so why why choose this job where you know there's serious physical consequences and mental consequences? Like I could go work a super safe job and maybe take a little bit less money, but you know, it's very safe. So no, you know, you're absolutely right, though. It is, I think it does need to be a calling. It needs to be something. And look, I, I and that's the reason I supported that doing ride-alongs for our folks that were applying for us in Ottawa as well. I wanted them to get a taste of what it means, right? Yeah, look, you spend five hours doing paperwork after an impaired driver, and you're trying to deliver this individual. You don't want to lock them up and all that kind of stuff, right? I want them to understand the boring side of it, but I also want them to see what you actually end up doing out there, the difference you can make. And it's the reason I was pushing my folks to take Sagonimus to none of it. And look, when I started as a chief in Ottawa, we were in no other country mm. in 2007. 2012, we were in five, uh, seven countries on the day I left as the police chief in Ottawa. Because I wanted my folks to have those opportunities to serve in Jordan, um, serve in Afghanistan, Haiti. Like I wanted them out there, uh, Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire. Mm-hmm. I wanted them out there with those opportunities. And, you know, we would have 100 applicants for five Spots in Haiti. Yeah, I have you know 150 applicants to go to Afghanistan. It's not that people don't want those challenges. It's that often, and I look, I had some people around me as the chief saying, "It's high risk. Why are we doing this?" 
what are you going to do at the first round ceremony? And I said, I'll be like everybody else. Sad. Mm-hmm. It'll be a very difficult situation. But if, if Canada decides they want to be in another country trying to make a difference, I think police organizations should try to pick up the mantle and take up that mantle and say, we want to be a part of that solution. Yeah. That's an opportunity I think we have. So, uh, you know, as difficult as it is to send people, and I met with every single officer who ever went overseas personally beforehand to talk about what I expected them to be there, you know, representing not just my uniform, not just my city, but my country. Uh, and when they came back, I would meet with them again uh, because I think that's another calling, right? And everybody who went, you know, our biggest challenge was many of them wanted to go again. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they got it in their blood and they, they couldn't get past it. So I, I think that calling means you provide opportunity. I did my doctorate thesis on the psychological contract and relational theory. So how you can influence people's minds to adapt and adopt and look for new opportunities within organizations and how that grows the relationship between the officer and the organization. And across the board found that if they understood why things were being offered and they were either partaking or not partaking in those opportunities, their relationship with the service improved. And if it improved with the service, it improved with the community. So kind of like Jedi mind tricks. <laughs> <laughs> I think every chief would like that. <laughs> well, so kind of getting on to your career. Uh, sure. You've worked in three different provinces, three different territories. So can you talk a little bit about uh, what you did in each one of those areas and, and run sure. us through that? Yeah, so I worked in Newfoundland. I was posted in Stephenville my first two years of my service. You know, typical break and enters, shoplifters, drunk drivers, um, intoxicated persons, you know, that first two years, bike thefts, as I say, I learned more from interviewing kids about bike thefts than I think any other interview because you do so many of them. <laughs> uh, then I went, then I went north to Northern Labrador, a place called Nain, yeah. in a community of about 1100 people, extremely violent, lots of addictions, a um, lot of challenges in the community and the busiest I've probably ever been in my life, you know, not uncommon to arrest uh, 35, 40 people on a weekend out of a thousand people. It was really busy, busy place. Wow. And then, and then after that, I went up north to Inuvik uh, for two years, a few months in a Klavik, uh, doing um, replacement work for an officer who was out for a while, and then down to Yellowknife for a couple of years. Uh-huh. I went over, promoted the corporal in the eastern Arctic place called Kimroot. It's probably 500 people. Um, Might have had five prisoners a year. It was a dry community, no alcohol, very relaxed, very uh, opportunity to engage in the community in a different way. You know, I think I spent a half a day every week in one class or another. You know, if they were playing floor hockey, I'd want to go to that class so I could play floor hockey. And, yeah. and, but it allowed you to play around with the, you know, restorative justice, community policing without the pressure of having to police the community at the same time. Mm. Uh, so it let me grow in that way. And then we had an explosion in Yellowknife in 1991, giant mine at the mine. There was a strike, and one of the strikers broke into the mine and killed nine people. Mm. And I was uh, sent over to Yellowknife as the primary investigator in that investigation for a few years. Um, and then uh, promoted to sergeant. Um, at the end, just after that, I ended up in Whitehorse in charge of uh, commercial crime, uh, commissioned to inspector in Whitehorse and commit, uh, promoted to chief superintendent in charge of Nunavut a couple of years later, uh, and then the assistant commissioner down in Ottawa. So really very lucky um, in my promotions. Uh, you know, a lot of good things happened to me. Uh, 
I did a couple of degrees while that was happening. I did an undergraduate degree from Acadia in psychology, sociology, and then I did a master's in conflict studies uh, from Royal Roads. Um, conflict studies masters, I tell people, if you're looking at policing as a long-term career, conflict studies is probably the greatest asset you can take on board because you're always involved in conflict internally and externally. It didn't matter. You know, there's always um, somebody out there who wants to have a discussion that doesn't necessarily move in the same direction as the organization or the law. So very helpful to me. 2005, I was an assistant commissioner in Ottawa. I didn't enjoy the administration side of Ottawa. I'd, I'd grown up all the way through the ranks in, in operational locations and mostly operational roles, even as a commanding officer. None of it, I was still a uh, ERT commander, so I would go on ERT, ERT calls with the uh, team. Um, mm. So in Ottawa, I didn't really feel like I could have an influence on the work I was doing. So I jumped uh, to the Durham Regional Police Service as police chief in 2005. And uh, I was there for two years, and I was offered the chief's job in Ottawa, and I jumped to that in 2007. Around the same time, I started my doctorate degree at uh, Charles Sturt University out of Australia. And in 2012, I was offered a uh, Senate appointment, even though I'd never belonged to a political party and never been to a political event. A bit of a surprise, really. And uh, in hindsight, probably should have stayed in policing a bit longer because I, I missed it for a long time. Still miss it today. I, I I don't think I was ready to leave. I, I probably left um, early. Mm. Uh, and then and then while I was in the Senate, I completed my doctorate uh, in, in leadership, police leadership out of Charles Sturt University in 2013. For all the education pieces, uh, do you just do those online or how do you manage those? A little bit of both. I did my uh, undergrad at Acadia. I would go every summer for three to six weeks and go full-time to school, take kind of, class from 9 to 12, 1 to 4, 7 to 10 kind of thing, oh, wow. and knock off a bunch of courses every summer, and then take uh, two or three through the winter so I could get my degree done. Uh, my master's degree at Royal Roads, they have a pretty good program where you can go for three, four, five weeks twice over a two-year period and do the rest by distance and then do your thesis. I did my thesis on restorative justice. And then my doctorate in Australia, I did it primarily by distance, but I went down to Australia four times and either guest lectured or had different sessions down there to get knock off the academic requirements before I did my thesis. So a little bit of both. Never went full time, ever. No. <laughs> Took me 22 years, though, I have to say. 22 years. To finish. I finished my three degrees. Wow. And yeah, yeah I couldn't imagine doing that while policing and doing all the other stuff you do family right yeah yeah it's busy yeah. so out of all those positions you've been especially at the higher up levels uh, uh what would you say the big difference between maybe being uh with the rcmp as opposed to the municipal services was because you're saying you had you could still be uh uh tactical uh, tactical commander yeah when you're with the rcmp but obviously not with the cities yeah, the big difference, you know, is the uh, the skeleton in the RCMP. Like, as commanding officer of none of it, the skeleton of support service, which was so much more, um, was so much smaller uh, per population of officers compared to being a chief in Durham or Ottawa. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the backbone was just so much stronger. You had those, uh, the uh, administrative resources that could manage all of those other challenges. That was the big difference for me. 
I didn't see a difference in the attitude of the policing. I used to joke that, uh, you know, they would say, well, wait till the RCMP is unionized. And I said, yeah, okay, well, wait till they're unionized. Because really, it did, it did not make a police officer different. In fact, I support uh, unionization and policing primarily because it gave clarity to what you can and can't do. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember a union president telling me one time I was wanting to give a benefit to officers that if they uh, did the pair testing, I would give them an extra day off for doing the physical testing. Yep. He said, well, it's not in the contract. <laughs> I said, yeah. what do you mean it's not in the contract? He said, we really should be putting that in the contract. You should be negotiating for that. And I said, okay, you can have it. Put it in if you like. I guess I'll tell the board. You know, like, so, so, but it gives clarity around it. Uh, so really, uh, the biggest difference for me was the support systems that are in place administratively in those municipal departments, much, much stronger. Well, and I have a recent example where uh, I was talking to some officers at one of the local detachments. It was a place we went to do a, a condition check on somebody. Anyways, we're talking with the officer and he says, yeah, we have three members on tonight. And we're actually calling somebody in from... Uh, I think the overtime officer was coming from Lloyd Minster to nearby Edmonton. And I was like, so you're bringing somebody from basically half, yeah, from halfway across the province. They put out the overtime call and um, then they got to pay for that person, you know, the per diems. They also got to put them in a hotel room for, I think he was going to be there for two nights. Yeah. And I was like, I know that when I take overtime here in the city, that's, it's expensive, but that's the only expense they have to pay. I couldn't imagine then they also got to foot a bill for a hotel and meals and everything. And, you know, right now there's a big debate with whether Alberta goes with the provincial police or not. Yeah. And just, I guess, on a larger scale, whether the contract policing is sustainable. Um, and this is something I kind of wanted to get to with you was, uh, you know, what are your views on whether the contract policing, is that something that's still viable in today's world? Or should we, maybe the provinces start looking at things like the OPP or what Quebec has? Yeah, it's a great question, you know, because here's the challenge, and I'm going to flip it upside down. If the RCMP are running 20% vacancy rates, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, I did ride along two years, just before COVID, I did a ride along with a couple of units in lower mainland BC. And we were out near Surrey area and they were, they were actually uh, backing up Surrey uh, RCMP officers. Yeah. And Surrey, per capita population-wise, but per call for service, they were very similar. Vancouver and Surrey were on that night of the week. But, but I think Vancouver had four times more officers working than Surrey had. Mm. That's not a viable policing model. I mean, so the RCMP has always sold themselves as we're a better deal. Um, well, realistically, when I joined the RCMP, they always sold themselves as a better service. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happened is that they're trying to be a better deal. I think the RCMP is trying to be too much to too many. So I guess my, my discussion would be around what can you actually provide and what can you demand a municipality or a province pay for and then decide whether or not that's an adequate level of service. Mm-hmm. Because if not an adequate level of service if in St. Albert or Spruce Grove, there's three officers working on a Thursday night, right? And, and the fact you have one person patrols regardless of the night of the week or the hour of the night, because that's all we can afford versus that's all we have. That can't be the reason that we're running these services the way we yeah. are. Yeah. 
Yeah, I don't get the even the debate. Like it always comes down to like you're saying, it's like, well, we're a better deal. Well, should we always be looking at the cheaper option? That's and and then I guess more on to whether you have control of the resources and the recruiting. Um, maybe you want more of the autonomy over that. Uh, in some discussions I've had with people, they say, you know, you know, if, if a place wants five more officers on the RCMP side, we'll give them five more. But I, from what I knew from the couple of years I was there and going through depot, you're kind of still at the mercy of Ottawa. They can, they ch- sent a whole entire troop over to Saskatchewan. They switched all their uh, postings like last minute. Here's your A22A. Now you're going to this completely different place. Yeah. So I thought, well, you aren't really going to get the officers you want. So you do have to kind of worry about that. Um, even though, even if the federal government foots uh, 30% of the bill, I think it is. So uh, I think it's, I think people want want to pay a little bit more if they're going to get a lot more. No, look, uh, if, uh, you know, if this, the city of Ottawa was being policed by the RCMP, it would probably be mm. 15%, 20% less officers, right? That's the reality. And we were barely managing the service we had with what we had. So I, I, I think, and I think if allowed to their own devices with an association in place, you know, the National uh, Police Association with Brian and those guys, I think they could get to a better place. But the federal government would have to say, and we're willing to fund the 30% on top of whatever everybody wants. Like when I was in Nunavut as a CO, commanding officer, uh, we had an agreement with the province who would get 27 new officers uh, out of 140. We were add 27. It took a year and a half to get that 27 number because mm-hmm. the federal government has to agree they're going to fund the 30% dollars, right? And not, and not only the 30% dollars that they're going to let me buy housing, yeah. you know, which was really expensive up there to buy housing for those officers. Whereas if that was in Ottawa and the city said, I'll give you 27 more officers, the next troop, I'd have 27 more people in it. Yeah. You know, and, and, and 16 weeks later, I'd have those people back doing their recruit field training. And 16 weeks after that, they'd be fully functional working in the city. So the, the challenges, I think, you know, back uh, 2002 or three, there was a discussion around regional policing within the RCMP. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about regionalization from, the Northwest region versus Pacific region that they talk about now. But they talked about regionalization from the decision-making would be done in a more localized model. Uh, so, for example, if Spruce Grove, St. Albert, Sherwood Park all ran a regional police service around the city of Edmonton, not suggesting, by the way, that that's what should be there. Maybe mm. it should be a regional police service with Edmonton instead of RCMP. That, would that be a better level of service? Yeah. I think that's the kind of frank discussions they need to have. Because right now, when you're running 20% and some provinces maybe more vacancy rates, you're not providing the level of service the public wants and probably not even close to what they need. Yeah. And they need to fix it. So from your time, uh, and this is getting on to maybe the police reform side of things, sure. your time as chief uh, for two services, your assistant commissioner, the Mounties, was there anything that you saw from your time there that you wanted to see done in police reform that maybe hasn't been done yet or people are working on finally? Um, yeah, there's lots of little things. I, I, um, 
I do think some reform around oversight from a, a board perspective or commission, as you call it in Edmonton, I think it's the Edmonton Police Commission, mm. some changes in that model, uh, less political, so okay. less, um, and, and I would argue the chair of a commission cannot be an elected representative of the region or the city because they, you know, those two hats are too heavy to wear, right? Mm. From a budget hat as a city official, a mayor or a councillor, to all of a sudden the chair of the commission. Uh, so I think there needs to be some work done around that model. I think they should be time timeouts. In other words, if you serve, say, six years as a commissioner, that you not be allowed to sit again for three years or something, because I think there needs to be a healthy rotation. I think that would bring a better level. I think there needs to be formalized training for those board members, not so that they understand policing from a police officer perspective, but they understand law enforcement from a community delivery perspective. Because I don't think there's enough of that. Um, you know, it's very difficult for, you know, my board chairs, who I, I liked a lot, they were friends, in fact, often. But realistically, how much they knew about law enforcement was minuscule. And I'm not suggesting that former police officers be brought in to actually do that. So I think from a board governance perspective that, and helping develop those police services, that could be done much better. I think the second side of it, I think we need national police standards, as I talked about earlier both agency-wise and officer-wise, so that agencies are meeting national standards, 170 police agencies across the country. Mm-hmm. We don't even have a national standard. On top of that, you could apply for a job in Alberta, meet all the standards of Alberta, and yet not meet any of the standards of Manitoba or Ontario. So I think we need police standards, uh, standards as well from a recruiting perspective. It would help us, I think, build that fluidity and allowing officers to be more mobile across the country and sometimes they'd want to live and work in one location and you know you're 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 47 years old and your 18 year old son now is going to Wade university mm-hmm. and i want to do another 10 years in policing he wants to go to uh, to ottawa i'm gonna see if ottawa will take me on for the next uh, four or five years before i reach retire. i think the ability to port those pensions and actually take those movements and not see it as a personal affront People just say to me, it's easy for you, Vern, you change jobs, change services three times, right? I have three different uniforms hanging in my closet. But I think it should be easy for all of us, right? I think we should be looking. Every time one of my officers went to another service, um, my goal was to see if they left because they wanted to go or because they felt they were not, not necessarily in the right place. Mm-hmm. From, uh, what was the issue with us, right? If they were leaving because it was for them, uh, man, I, I went to their going away party and said, look, I, I, I did the exact same thing. Good for you. Yeah. That's the kind of person I want to remove. So I think those areas are areas we could clean up very quickly. For the national standards, I wonder if, uh, like when we're talking like use of force and, and maybe even whether people can transfer services or not, do you see that as maybe certain provinces like Quebec or now Alberta and Saskatchewan kind of going that way of less Ottawa, more local? Do you think they would agree to those ideas or would that just be seen as you know you're just trying to we're all just trying to come under one uh government well i guess i'm back to they have what's called fpt right federal provincial territorial meetings every year on mm-hmm. justice healthcare, all kinds of things they could be developed in that form from a national standard perspective i'm not suggesting for a minute it should be the federal government saying it i'm saying it should be national standards that we all adopt we have national standards for cell phone use for mm-hmm. like a, a lot of things, right? So almost an ISO model where 
if you want to be a police officer in Alberta, you have to meet the following requirements. And those same requirements are set in stone for the province of Nova Scotia so that people applying could actually kind of look around. And, and when I was a chief in Ottawa, I had probably 700 people on a wait list for our recruiting pool. I sent, I think, 120 of their files to Vancouver when Vancouver was on a huge recruiting drive prior to the Olympics. Um, and with their permission, they sent their files to Vancouver. I think they hired 10 or 12 of them. They were never going to get hired by us. Mm-hmm. Not that they weren't good enough to be police officers, but we were hiring 30 people a year. We were adding 400 people to my list, right? Wow. So they had, they have great opportunity to be a great police officer. They just needed that exposure with another service, and they didn't have it in their head what that would look like. Okay. So I tried to help them get there. So I think I think we could actually share the pain a little bit and maybe as a result share the gain. Yeah. Well, and this leads maybe into something that's kind of recent in the news with the uh, Nova Scotia, the mass casualty inqu- inquiry. Yeah. Uh, as Maybe as an assistant commissioner, maybe you would have some insight to this, but how much influence does Ottawa itself have on the direction that the RCMP takes, whether it's releasing certain information or uh, uh, how an investigation might go? Yeah, look, in my experience, you know, you know I was the acting commanding officer uh, and the criminal operations officer for the Yukon and then the commanding officer for none of it. So I didn't work in any of the large provinces down south from a, from a command perspective. Um, I, so I can't speak to them. But I have to say on the ground in none of it, they would not have had much involvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have been feeding them. I would have been feeding them information so they were knowledgeable about what's happening. But realistically, I felt pretty autonomous in the decision-making process. Now, I think um, the mass shooting in Nova Scotia is, you know, thankfully, not something we see very often in this country. So maybe the political pressure was different. Um, Obviously, they have problems with uh, the reporting structure when you know, the commissioner is trying to answer. I don't agree with the commissioner reporting directly to the minister, by the way. Mm-hmm. I think that's a challenge. <clears throat> Australia has the same model, and they typically have one commissioner under investigation almost all the time for sharing information they shouldn't share with a minister. Oh, really? That's an issue. That's an issue they have. So I, I've been arguing, if you go back to the Brown report in 2010, uh, who looked at the RCMP, recommended that there be direct oversight and governance to the RCMP that did not include the minister. So this isn't news. At least 12 years they've been talking about it. So that would help alleviate some of those issues. Uh, when I was the chief in Ottawa, I I can't even think of a time where the mayor called me up and said, what's going on with ever? Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I would, you know, maybe, maybe brief the board chair on an issue saying, look, you know, at one point we had an individual, we realized as a result of DNA, we had one individual killed three different women over a period of time. And I notified the, the board chair and just said, so, you know, I'm going to be coming out with a brief and acknowledging that we have a serial killer um, only targeting prostitutes and that uh, we are no longer going to investigate or even on a proactive perspective deal with prostitution because I didn't want them hiding in alleys. Right. Mm-hmm. I wanted them be whatever activity they're involved in. We couldn't afford for them to be doing it in dark space. And uh, the board chair asked a few questions. I said, you can notify the mayor to want him to be surprised by it. But there wasn't a dialogue about, like you saw during the convoy, where you know the, the chief is having a, a press conference with the public and the media, 
and the board chair is actually involved in the press conference asking and answering operational questions. Mm. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Like that would never, that would not have happened. And I, to be blunt, I would not have been employed for a service where there was an expectation that that's the way things would happen. That was crazy. Yeah. So I think there needs to be that separation of power. Uh, but he looked, there was a gov- board of governance in, in that case. And the fact that a politician, a councillor, was sitting in his chair made it difficult, I think. Back to the reason I don't think a politician should be sitting as a board chair or a commission chair. Yeah, we definitely see that, like even in local politics, like no matter what level it's at, there's always somebody kind of involved and you got to just hope they, I don't know, can separate their own personal agendas or, or influences. Or biases. Uh, and, yeah. yeah. So um, one of the things you mentioned, uh, and this was a topic we we're going to get to today was uh, restorative justice. Yeah. So you were telling me that you had a project on the go, but can you explain kind of just to start for some listeners, what is sure. restorative justice? How does it work? Um, and then maybe talk about your project that you got going on. Yeah, so, so traditionally, restorative justice is a method in which we deal with often criminal offenses, although it's done in uh, school settings as well, uh, with uh, offenses in a manner other than your mainstream justice system. So in Yukon was very active. We had, I did my, my master's thesis on looking at client satisfaction, so how victims and offenders felt the restorative justice process work in comparison to mainstream, uh, but also uh, recidivism rates we looked at. Recidivism rates around the world when they've done these studies, much lower with restorative justice than mainstream justice. Primarily because you enter a system where you have to acknowledge and accept responsibility for your actions versus a system where you have two lawyers standing up there yelling at each other. You never have to say anything. Mm-hmm. The victim never gets a chance to say anything unless they're a witness, right? So really, it's there's no ownership. Nobody represents the victim in that environment at all, yeah. right? They represent the queen or the crown and the king today, I guess, and they represent the interests of their defendant. So that system typically has very, very high uh, re- repeat offender or recidivism rates. So I've been involved in a lot of restorative justice over the last, my, you know, my 32-year career, very successfully. Um, there's lots of work to it. There's lots of challenges. It's not a faster system, but I would argue it's a better one. So when I was the chief in Ottawa, I decided that we would roll out a restorative justice practice for discipline matters with our officers. And I think one year we had 37% of our cases went through a restorative practice process, whereby the officer, instead of going through that typical arduous, uh, adversarial, I hired a lawyer, the union hired a lawyer, mm-hmm. they ended up in a, you know in an, an adjudication process. Very challenging for everybody. For me as chief, I found challenging. And, and because you end up in there telling, saying things about your employees. <clears throat> and typically, a lot of those issues were, well, I would argue, labor matters. Um, probably not meant to be dealt with in this manner. In fact, arguably should be dealt with as performance. But if nothing else, be dealt with in some type of restorative process. Because really, it's not meant to beat you over the head with a stick to get, to get you to behave differently. Right? We should be providing you training, opportunities, education, you, you, you accepting your responsibility for your actions. In the case, a lot of our complaints were, you know, uh, an officer swore at some woman when she pulled, he pulled her over. What the F were you thinking driving the speed in a school zone? Right? And she complains. And three months later, we deal with it. You know, he cost him a, 
a day's pay or something ridiculous amount of time spent and almost never one where either the complainant or the officer felt better about it. Mm-hmm. Not, almost never. So in our case, we did things like engaging between the, the complainant and the officer face-to-face, almost always resulted in a quick resolution. In fact, sometimes quicker than you wanted because you wanted to make sure they understood where we were. Uh, often we would tell officers, what do you think you should do? And if they said, I want a day off, I would say, yeah, I'm not going to give you a day off, but I'm going to let you work an extra shift. What division do you want to be in? And when you go there, I want you to tell them why you're there. Mm-hmm. Here's what I did. Here's right. So trying to get to a point where people accept responsibility for their action. The second part of that is that it almost across the board, we saw a difference in the attitude of the officers in the manner in which they were dealt with because they felt like they were respected a little better. So you know what? We all make mistakes. You know, 30 years in policing, there wasn't a day I went home that I didn't think I wish I'd done something better or differently. But there was many days I went home and said, you know what? I screwed that up. Mm-hmm. I wish I had that over again to do. And maybe or maybe not, I found myself, you know, at the standing in front of a corporal or a sergeant or an inspector explaining myself. But at the end of the day, if there's one of these, you know, we make a, we make a mistake, we do something wrong, we have an opportunity to accept responsibility for it, I think we grow from it. And that's really what my focus is. I'm dealing with a group out of Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia has probably the best restorative justice program in the country right now. And we're having this discussion around a couple of police services. We would like to see adopt a restorative practice model with uh, discipline matters and see if if it comes out better. You know, we want to do some research around it at the same time, interviewing people before and after. How did they feel about it? Did they think it was a fair process? That kind of stuff. And, you know, a, a service like Edmonton, um, Durham, I think there are others as well that I think could uh, could actually make some hay with gaining better relationships with the membership through this practice. So what kind of resourcing would that take? Because I'm thinking you're going to have to get, like if it's a professional standards complaint, you got to get the whole service on board and professional standards branch branch and it's policy change. But then if you want the criminal justice to get on board, now you're going through like a whole nother chain of command and level of government. So, uh, So we're clear though. Almost every criminal offense can go through restorative justice now. Mm-hmm. So there's not a, there's not a, we don't require changes cr- to the criminal code or, or to legislation. In fact, in Ottawa, we uh, ramped it up after training and stuff in a matter of a couple of months. You, you want to make sure you're monitoring and, and making sure that you're engaging with the people involved in it. We used our own officers to be the uh, practitioners managing the process. Um, but, but, I tell you, it's not. It's not. Wasn't more resource intensive yeah. than the friggin' formal process yeah. we were running. <laughs> we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, us in the union, on on legal fees, mm-hmm. and and then on the grievances that follow as a result. It was crazy, and we weren't doing the most serious of cases. If we, you know, if we were trying to fire somebody for their actions, then we weren't dealing with those cases. It's not appropriate. You know, you need to because someone's job is on the line. But we were dealing with so many other cases every year that really didn't require the same arduous process that would be put in place and, and the negative feelings that come out as a result of those. And that's the ones that really you want to focus on because that's your majority. Mm-hmm. I say we had 400, 400 public complaints a year in Ottawa. Out of the 400, um, 100 were real complaints. In other words, the rest were complaints that either was misunderstanding or to be fair, the complainant was wrong. So you'd have 100 that were valued. Out of those hundreds, there were probably 20 that were fairly serious. 
Um, in other words, 80 were attitude, swearing at somebody, the way you spoke to them, didn't answer the question you should have. You know, you'd... So so there were that type of complaint. Out of those 20, uh, you would investigate and come back with you know serious findings. Out of those, you'd have four or five that were criminal in nature, maybe an impaired driving, maybe something other criminal in nature, a fraud, something like that. The remainder were discipline matters that realistically you weren't firing people for. Mm-hmm. Um, those ones were the ones that three years down the road, you were still trying to deal with the officers on admin duties, you know, at the front desk, they've lost their position. They're now embarrassed. They never come back or seldom come back from that to a point where they feel like they're as valued as they were prior. Those ones are the most important ones because you can deal with them and you can engage with the officers one way or another, for the most part, want to actually get past it. So I think there's an opportunity to deal with those 80 that maybe, you know, pick and choose from those and then the more serious ones. Um, for the most part, you could deal with a lot of those cases and get rid of them and, and move them along so that these officers aren't carrying them for so long. The victims aren't pissed off because, pardon my language, oh, because, fine. you know, three years later, they're still waiting to hear yeah. what's going on. You know, they forgot to even complain in some cases. Remember one lady complained and she forgot that she even lodged a complaint. She said, oh, I forgot all about that. Yeah whatever, right? I mean, that's not helpful either. Yeah. Well, and so how do you get it to a point where, so the, the offense or the issue comes to light, how does one then move it to restorative justice? Like, is it just as long as one person says, Hey, is this good? And then everybody agrees. Now we can just go down that road. So we trained our uh, union executives and our, our, cause the union had people who would deal with labor issues. We trained them and we trained our senior executive. I went through the, even though I, I'm a trainer in restorative justice, I went through the two days of training. <clears throat> so we trained everybody. Mm-hmm. Then we walked through a process we would follow. So here's what we're going to do in the future. Now, if an officer, you know, well, I have one officer who was playing hockey late at night, uh, did this twice where he, you know, got home three in the morning. Typically, you lie in bed for two hours thinking I could have made the NHL, maybe not the Oilers, but maybe <laughs> Ottawa. <laughs> and then uh, you sleep in in this court twice. He did it. First time it cost him four days pay. Oh, wow. Four days pay. He he still did it again seven months later. So he 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 didn't lie about you know I screwed up. I slept in right. I should have set an alarm. I maybe should have skipped hockey last night. One case was an impaired driver. We lost as a result. Uh, in that case, the second time around, I asked him if he wanted as long to do restorative justice because obviously taking four days pay and the next time be ten days pay not helpful to him. Mm-hmm. And he engaged right away and said, yeah, look, you know what? Uh, sure, why not? We walked through. We had a crown prosecutor as the complainant because she's the one who called the office and said he didn't show up for court. We lost an their driving case. She was a complainant. Engaged them. We dealt with it in a matter of four weeks, maybe. He never did get taken off his regular duties. Uh, he ended up choosing to work, I think, six shifts, uh, one in each platoon in different locations and wrote a quick... Uh, article on uh, trust and responsibility in police. Not that we shared it with anybody, but I wanted him to tell me how he understood it. Mm -hmm. And he was our poster child afterwards. If somebody got in trouble, he's banging on their door saying, you know what? You got to look at this. If they're not after your job, you need to deal with this quickly. You need to get back to where you were. You need to get back to work. You know, we're no longer taking them away from their, their, their primary function, all that stuff. It worked really well for us. Uh, to be fair, the chief who replaced me, I think, dropped it later on. Mm. Um, I'm not, I don't know why. It doesn't really matter why. But at the end of the day, I think it's a good opportunity to uh, 
And at the same time, if the police see it, how it works for them, maybe officers will be more receptive to using it in the community as well, right? Saying, you know what, if this is good for me, why isn't it good for that 16-year-old goofball that we keep dealing with? Yeah. Why don't we push him into this instead of continuously issuing him a ticket that his parents pay for? Well, in the criminal side, so what's uh, what's the threshold or how does it that how is that determined as to which of type of offense is not suitable for it? Well, if you look at the criminal code under the discretion side, right, the police have the opportunity to do many things that they don't always do. But in, in Durham region, we rolled out restorative justice for, for youth only. And we were dealing with right up to armed robberies. Wow. Um, particularly because the vast majority of our offenders were dealing with addictions, mental illness, or concurrent disorder, or both. So we, had, we would engage them, and the province funded a mental health worker, an addictions uh, worker, and a coordinator at the police service to run a pilot project in 2005 that's still running today, 17 years later. Mm-hmm. And they're running hundreds of young people through that program every year and seeing real positive, because, real positive results because they're dealing with the underlying issues of why that individual was involved in criminal activity. Wow. Well, and is that also dependent on whether the victim wants to take part in that? So if the victim says, it no, is, I want... Although if the victim says no, it doesn't mean it's out. Oh, really? Okay. The victim, yeah, it doesn't mean, does not mean, same as if in the criminal process, a victim may say, look, I, you may force me to come and give evidence, but I'm not doing anything else because you've got to subpoena me. I'm not in, being involved. I'm not giving you a victim impact statement. So no, it's better if the victim's involved, but it's not impossible to do without the victim. Uh, maybe I'm, I got to word it different, but is it uh, for the victim if they don't see that as a suitable solution? So they say, no, I want this person to do time. I want them to get a criminal record. Uh, can the courts still say, no, we want to go to the restorative justice route? Well, I'm a fan of pre-charge, so the court's not involved. So I'm a fan that you actually deal with it without taking it to the court process for most. Some cases you need the court to kind of rubber stamp or be involved, but I'm a fan of actually pre-charge. Yeah. But at the end of the day, an individual can't force you to lay a charge. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You still have police discretion. Okay. And um, your project, so where is it kind of at right now? So I don't know. I've, I've spoken to a few chiefs now. I want to get a, a cohort of a few departments in Canada that want to be involved in this because I'd like them to kind of feed off each other successes, failures. What have you tried? What have we tried? Same with associations. To be fair, if the association's not interested, I wouldn't want to do it. I think we need them. They represent the membership in a different way than a chief or executive or a service represents the membership. Mm-hmm. I think they both need, to, both need to be buying into the system to be successful. So we'll see over the next, hopefully over the next couple months, I get a couple of services to um, say that, you know, let's have a look at it. Oh, that should be good. I, I'm very curious as to how how it might look or what it would look like in the future, you know, and sure. I know that's a huge issue here with legal fees and they take up a huge part of uh, the money that a union has. So I think any way they can, you know, find a solution that works out for everybody, but cost less. Uh, I think they'd be all game for it. So, yeah. um, one thing I was hoping you could talk a bit about was your work in the Senate. Sure. So, because um, you were saying you you missed policing while you were there and um, yeah. maybe left a bit early. But uh, 
what kind of got you into that work? And then what, what did it look like when you were in there? What were you doing? Well, I got a phone call late at night saying, were you interested in the Senate position? I thought it was a practical joke. <laughs> One of those, uh, you know, stop calling me. I'm on holidays uh, phone call. Um, when I realized it was serious, I took a few weeks to consider because I wasn't sure. I was never involved in politics. I didn't always agree. There's no government I always agree with. Mm-hmm. You know, that. Uh, so if people ask me, I'm probably a fiscal conservative and a social liberal. I want our healthcare system and our education system to be well developed so that we all have uh, opportunities and our kids do, but I want it to be fiscally responsible. So that's kind of where I sit politically. Um, so when I got a phone call from Stephen Harper, I didn't necessarily agree with all the decisions that uh, that government was making at the time, as I don't agree with any other government to, <laughs> and the decisions they've always made. So it was a difficult decision to make from that perspective. I naively believe maybe I could make a bigger difference than I could, uh, because at the end of the day, it's still a political machine. And politics still plays such a large part um, that it, I couldn't make as big a difference as I'd hoped I could. So I was disappointed in many ways. Uh, and I left at 52. I probably should have kept policing for another five or six years. And then if that was offered to me, maybe I'd be ready for it. Um, you know, I still teach, you know, three or four uh, police university courses in Australia every year. I spoke yesterday at the Canadian Association of Police Governance event for them on policing. So I still, you know, I sat on a PhD thesis um, thesis panel out of Simon Fraser University last week on police leadership development. So I still stay very engaged to stay uh, as much as I can still in that pool of water of knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, wrote, write, I write articles in Australia and uh, Finland and Canada on policing issues. I'm writing one right now on why the police should not take up the mantle of becoming better at mental health so that they replace mental health workers. I think we need more mental health workers, as an example, Mm -hmm. instead. Um, So I try to stay involved with it, but it probably means I wasn't ready to leave it. I should have hung around for a few more years. Um, But look, I I I don't live life with very many regrets, so it is what it is, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just something different. Something different. Well, and what led you to your job now? So how did that come about? And can you tell us? so my what. My wife is from Northern Finland, and we'd always said that when her parents were at a certain age, we'd move back to Finland with them, kind of help you know take care of them, and they're at that age. Um, so we knew it would come, wasn't sure when. Probably would have come a year earlier, except COVID kind of threw us off a year. <clears throat> and then uh, in the spring, I was offered a job uh, starting in, uh, in Finland this summer as a partnership development for this, uh, it's called CCAP, it's a secure communications mass alerting. Uh, so my job is to try and find organizations that may need this platform. And if they do, help them to help build a relationship with them. And if not, then uh, move on to the next uh, kind of place. I'm responsible for Canada, Australia, and the UK. So it kind of gives me it's places I've done work at before and, and uh, maybe gives me a, 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 big, a larger Rolodex than maybe I would have had if they had given me France, Belgium, and Italy or something. Mm-hmm. So I'm living here. I, I could be doing this job somewhere else. I'm here really because of uh, family. And any plans to uh, move or does the job have lots of travel and you're good where you are? No, n- not lots of travel. Um, not lots of travel. And I'm good where I am for now. Look, I, I've moved, I think, 17 times in 32 years of policing. So, 
<laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, I always I always said really a packing box and a roll of tape, and I can be where you need me to be. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, maybe someday in the future there'll be something else out there. But for today, uh, you know, for this Christmas, I'm good. What about policing in Finland? No, not possible. If no. you don't speak Finnish and Swedish, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, and fin- Finnish is a language from uh, uh, H-E double hockey sticks, as <laughs> my daughter would say. <laughs> it's a tough language. Yeah, it's a tough language. Well, um, I think we've kind of covered everything we talked about. Uh, is there a place that people could kind of follow your work or keep up to date on uh, things you're thinking about? Sure, yeah, they can jump on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, Vernon White, um, send me a message, internal message, or try to connect with me if they wish. Wish, and I can uh, <clears throat> engage with them. I've uh, I try to post any articles I write there. Mm-hmm. Um, to be to be blunt, uh, if they wish, they can email me vernwhite at vernwhite.com as well. If they have a question, and uh, I'll try to answer it for them. If I think they're being a pain in the ass, I'll block them. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> There's always the block button. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, no, look, anybody can reach out to me anytime. If they're working on any articles for school, I'm always kind of uh, supervising a master's thesis or two, or I'm teaching a course on organized crime. <clears throat> Pardon me right now out of Australia. Mm-hmm. If they need any information, I can help out. Uh, if I can't help them, I can usually connect them with somebody who can. Well, cool. Um, I th- want to say thanks for coming on. We always appreciate the time, especially uh, being halfway around the world. And we'll have to get in touch in the future and maybe get an update on how things are going. Yeah, absolutely. Look, you take care of yourself. Be safe out there, right? All right. Thanks a lot. And just hang on the line. I'll say bye offline. Okay.